Well, what a great truth that is. We all need the Lord to fill us, bread of heaven, the water of life. Well, what a great truth. You have your Bibles tonight. I want you to open with me, Will, to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 16. Luke, chapter 16. I'm going to read a familiar passage and try to pull something out of one of the verses and give you something that the Lord has dealt with my heart about tonight. So when you find verse number 19, Luke chapter 16, if you're physically able to do so, I'd like to invite you to stand to your feet with me, please. We'll read through the end of the chapter, through verse 31. Then we'll have you read one of those verses with me. Luke chapter 16, I'll begin reading in verse 19. There was a certain rich man, which was clothed in purple and fine linen, and fared sumptuously, Every day. And there was, lay, there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, which was laid at his gate full of sores, and desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. And it came to pass that the beggar died and was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried, and in hell he lift up his eyes, being in torments, and seeth Abraham afar off, and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus, that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. And Abraham said, Son, remember that thou in thy lifetime receivest thy good things, and likewise Lazarus evil things, but now he is comforted, and thou art tormented. And beside all this, between us and you, there is a great gulf fixed, so that they which would pass from hence to you cannot, neither can they pass to us that would come from hence. Then he said, I pray thee, therefore, Father, that thou wouldst send him to my father's house, for I have five brethren. And they may testify unto them, lest they also come into this place of torment. Abraham saith unto him, They have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, Nay, Father Abraham, but if one went unto them from the dead, they will repent. And he said unto him, If they hear not Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rose from the dead. I want us to go back to verse number 28. It is the text verse for tonight. And I want us to read verse number 28 together. You ready? For I have five brethren that he may testify unto them, lest they also come into this place of torment. I want to draw your attention to the last four words of that verse. And it says... This place of torment. This place of torment. I've entitled this message tonight by that title, This Place of Torment. Let us pray. Father, we thank you tonight for allowing us to be able to come back and be in our house tonight. And Lord, what a good sweet spirit we had this morning. What a good sweet spirit we've had tonight. Now, Father, we've come to this portion of the service and the bread of life has been broken. A very sobering passage of Scripture. 
And Lord, I believe you have a message that you have given me tonight out of this text. But as I stand here before thy people in thy house, I am very well aware of my inability and my unworthiness to be here. Oh, dear Jesus, once again, I would beg you to cleanse me afresh and anew with the blood of Calvary. And Holy Ghost, I would pray you'd fill me with unction that I can preach in power and demonstration of the Spirit. That every person here would feel like this message is for them and them alone. Lord, I pray that Jesus Christ can be uplifted and glorified. For it is in His name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. I want to give you a little background coming to this particular passage of Scripture. As I began to study this, and God began to in my heart about it, I began to think about something, and, and, and I want to just talk to you a few minutes and, and build the setting of this particular portion of Scripture that's given to us. If we went all the way back to chapter 15 and we started there, you, you have this setting being set in place for what we just read. You'll find that in this, the first of chapter 15 that the publicans and the harlots and the sinners are coming to Christ and He is dealing with them. And as He's dealing with them, the Pharisees don't like it. Uh, and they accuse Him of being a friend of sinners, of going to eat with sinners. And, and they attack our Lord on uh, this thing of being with sinners. And then in chapter 15, there are three great parables given. He starts with a parable of the lost sheep. If there's a man has a hundred sheep and one of them goes astray, then you'll leave the 99 and you'll go find the lost sheep and he'll carry it back. Boy, isn't that a picture of our Lord uh, reclaiming the backslider with the great truth. And then there's the parable of the lost coin. The woman has ten coins and she loses one and she sweeps the house and cleans the house and she finds the coin. And then there was the parable of the lost boy. We call it the prodigal son. And you have all three of those. And what Jesus was teaching is He's teaching these Pharisees that, you know what I came for? It is to seek and to save that which was lost. And, and in all of chapter 15, you have that great message of the redemptive power of the Lord Jesus Christ and, and, and what He... Uh, how. He came to seek and to save the lost. Now, he hasn't quit teaching this same time frame. And you find in chapter 1, verse number 16, it says, And he said also unto his disciples. So after he has answered the Pharisees, he now addresses his disciples. Now, the Pharisees are still there. And he addresses them in the first part of chapter 16. And as he begins to address them, the first thing he does is he gives what we call the parable of the unjust steward. It is a man that has a stewardship and he's been unfaithful in it. And his Lord comes to him and says, you've got to give an account and I'm going to remove you from this. And then you remember how the unjust steward, he did something wisely and, and, he, and he says to himself, I cannot beg, I'm ashamed to beg, and I cannot dig, I can't really work. And so he calls his Lord's uh, debtors, and he reduces all of their debt. And then his Lord commended the unjust steward because of his wisdom and uh, of being compassionate and what he did with these folks. And so then 
Jesus gives at the end of that, He talks about you and I having a responsibility with the mammon, the unjust mammon of this world. And if we are not faithful in that, we cannot be faithful in the true riches. And that is what that all that parable of the unjust steward is about as it comes to the end of it. Then when he gets done with that, the Pharisees mock it and make fun of it. They rid him again. And he then deals with them from verses 15 through 18 with their lack of faith. And so now get the setting. Jesus is teaching this great truth of winning lost. And yet at the same time, He's dealing with His disciples about their responsibility and what He has given them in this world that is going to pass away. And then He's dealt with the Pharisees. And then He comes to this most sobering of all texts. I said this morning as at the end of the service, I was going to try to preach to you tonight one of the most neglected Bible doctrines that we have, and that is the doctrine of hell. It is a hard thing to preach on. It'd be a lot easier tonight to preach on heaven. Not a lot of shouting go on when you preach on hell. There shouldn't be. But it is one of the most neglected doctrines we have. It is neglected from our pulpits. It's neglected from our classrooms. It's neglected from our homes. It's neglected from what we're doing as Christians in teaching people. And so Jesus is dealing with this multitude of people, with the harlots and the publicans and the sinners and the Pharisees, these religious hypocrites, they're lost, and even His disciples. And He's dealt with them on all this subject of winning souls and finding the lost sheep and the lost coin and praying for the prodigal and, and, and trying to be very faithful in what He's given us to do. And He comes to the end of all of that and He gives this great truth, this place of torment. This place of torment. As I was thinking about this message, there was a couple of quotes that I thought about. Bob Jones Sr., great preacher from the last century, used to say, there's nothing wrong with America that a generation of hellfire and damnation preachers can't cure. And I believe that. I believe there's nothing wrong with our nation that cannot be cured by old-fashioned preaching. Preaching where we love people, but we warn people. Preaching the truth and love and warning people that there is a place called hell. And preaching it, and preaching it truly and accurately and soberly. I was reminded of Another quote by D.L. Moody. D.L. Moody was that great evangelist that God used in the 1800s and 19th century. D.L. Moody reached out with one hand and shook Europe, with another hand and shook America. He said a million people got saved under his ministry. D.L. Moody once said, he said, I wish I could open hell up and put every Christian in hell for five minutes.
And when they came out of hell, they would spend their time winning the lost. I thought about those two statements by two great men of God that won thousands, millions to Christ, literally, still have an influence today. And I want you to understand that part of their preaching and teaching revolved around their understanding of this place of torment. I'm afraid oftentimes that we know it's there. I mean, this is a fundamental Bible-believing Baptist church. If I'd ask you when you come in this doors tonight, do you believe in hell? Yes, preacher, I believe in hell. I believe in that. When is the last time that you actually contemplated it? When's the last time you actually sat down and thought about it? Do you recognize and realize that hell is described in detail greater than heaven is? The Lord says about heaven that it's not entered into the heart of man what God has described for him. Most time when people talk about heaven and they describe all the walls of jasper and the gates of pearl and the streets of gold, that's not heaven, that's New Jerusalem, which comes out of heaven and sets on a new earth. But hell is vividly described. It is something that God wants you and I to grab hold of, and He wants it to have a hold of our attention. It is why Jesus came to this earth. Had there been no hell, there would have been no need of His sacrifice. If there was not an eternal punishment, an eternal damnation, there would be no reason of Christ coming. And so when he comes to the end of teaching in this particular setting, he gives this place of torment to challenge the lost and to convict the saved. And I want to look at a couple of things about tonight. And then I want to try to speak to my heart and your heart, as God has spoken to my heart already about it. And I want us to think about this place of torment tonight. Now I want you to notice in this place of torment, that number one, there are only two types of people on the earth. He mentions here this rich man and Lazarus. There were only two people. There were not three or four or a multitude because every person is either going to be delivered from this place of torment or be doomed to this place of torment. So every person, it's under the sound of my voice tonight, you are going to one of those two places. You're either going to heaven or you're going to hell. You're either going to be delivered from this place of torment by the blood of Calvary or you're going to be doomed to be in hell for all eternity because you rejected the blood of Calvary. And so when we come to this place, Jesus wants us to think about it. And He wants me to let it soak in to my heart and my mind. Something I need to think about every day. 
in some shape, form, or fashion. He said, preacher, that, that, would, that would make me not enjoy life. No, no. It would help you and I to, to live more soberly and righteously in this present world. Now, I want us to look at something, four things, just by describing it tonight. In this text, you don't have to leave this text. I want you to notice we all in verse 22. And it came to pass that the beggar died and was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. And the rich man also died and was buried. Now, by the way, I want you to notice that everybody's going to die. Outside of what I preached on this morning, which is that wonderful thing of the rapture, every one of us is going to die. And when you die, you're immediately going to be either in heaven or hell. Now that, that's an important doctrine, an important thing that we, we, we need to notice. The, there were, the beggar died, and immediately he was in Abraham's bosom, that's in, was in paradise. He's comforted, and he's there. His soul is immediately there. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 says, To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. There is no such thing as this doctrine of soul sleep, that you die and you sleep. There's no such thing in the Bible as an intermediary state that you go and you're sort of in limbo. That doesn't exist. You immediately either go to heaven or hell. The rich man died, and the start of verse 23 says, And in hell he lift up his eyes, being in torments. Now I want you to notice, both of them died. We know that Lazarus was buried because the Lord resurrected him. And both of them, both of them, immediately was in either heaven or hell. Now tonight, when someone dies, that is not the end of their life. As a matter of fact, when I preach a funeral, oftentimes I say their life has just begun. They are now in the presence of an almighty God. And by the way, that's true whether they're saved or lost. Saved is in His very presence, enjoying the glories of heaven, and the lost are in the very presence of His judgment, and they will forever be in this place of torment. And so there's a truth here. This man died, and immediately he is in hell. So understand that. This is really the most important thing in life. All of our lives are going to end. You've got a lot of young people in here tonight, so you may understand this, but your life's going by pretty quick. I was thinking about something the other day, and last Monday I'd been saved 46 years, and boy, that's went by quick. And that, that 46 years has, has went by pretty quick. I'll, I'll be 60 years old here in a little while, and for all practical purposes, I've lived... It's hard to say this sometimes. I've lived more than 75% of my life, and it's went by quick. Under a normal circumstance. So you're pretty morbid. No, I'm just one of these fellows that look stuff square in the face and don't shy from it. I want to know the truth. And I want to see where I'm at and what I'm facing and where I'm going. And, and life moves on quickly. That's why Jesus says, what is your life? He says in the book of James, by inspiration, what is your life? It is even a vapor that appeared for a little time and then vanished away. I, I'll tell you something, your life is quickly over. And when it's over, you're going to be in one of two places. By the way, 
The life of your family and friend is quickly over. Uh, it seems like all I do every morning is I'm, anymore I'm at funerals and either preaching them or being there and was at one today and, and Elizabeth and I talked about this not long ago and she said, boy, it seems like we're going to a lot more funerals than we've ever went to. And I said, it's because we're older. I don't understand what I'm about to say. I say we're older. Our parents are older. Our aunts and uncles are older. All of our cousins are older. All of our friends are older. Everybody we knew is older. All of the people we looked up to as, as young people and, and children are older. And you know what happens? They, the way of the world and, and they die. And there reaches a time. I've, I do a lot of funerals where somebody that's up in their 80s and 90s say, Hey, preacher, I've got more people on the other side than I've got here. I'm beginning to understand that. There's truth in that. But now having said all of that, I need to bear in mind this place of torment because it's real. So now I want you to look at verse number 24. There's two things I want to pull out verse 24 that's real that I need to see. And he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that it may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. Now once you notice, number one, in that verse, there is unquenchable fire. And once in a while I read something where one of these people try to claim there's no fire in hell, all that proves to me is they have never really studied the Bible. Well, they've tried to explain away the Bible. I want you to notice that he says, I am tormented in this flame. It's not just heat. It's a literal fire. It is an unquenchable fire. Oh, this man has been there for 2,000 years now. And he's no closer to getting out than he was when he got there. He's still tormented in that unquenchable flame. It's real. I need to bear in mind that when someone dies and goes to hell, they don't burn up. Their soul is in this un quenchable flame. They do not get used to it. <laughs> I've lived long enough and preached long enough and tried to win people to Christ long enough. I've, every once in a while I run across some redneck and they'll say, oh, I want to go to hell. I want to have a party in hell. Well, man, it's not true. You ain't going to have no party in hell. You're going to be tormented in an unquenchable fire. I want you to notice something else. He, he, he asked an interesting question to, to Abraham. He, he doesn't say, get me out of here. As you notice in all this text, he never asked to get out because he knows he's there justly. And he knows there's no hope of him getting out. He doesn't even argue the point that he should be there or shouldn't be there. It's just. 
He's just asking for a little reprieve. Now I want you to think about it a minute. Have you ever thought about how little water he's asking for? It's an unbearable thirst. I don't know if you've ever been real thirsty. I mean, my, my, we've, we've worked in hot conditions and things, and sometimes you get real thirsty. And when you get real thirsty, I've never thought, you know what? I'm going to go over here to the, I'm going to go over here to this bottle of water, and I'm going to screw the cap off of it and stick my finger down in it and pull my finger up, and whatever drops off the end of my finger, that's going to satisfy me. Because you understand how little that is. But that's what he's asking for. He says, I want you to send Lazarus. I don't want you to... I'm tormented in his flame, and I've got this unbearable thirst, and and just want him to stick his finger down in the water and and pull his finger out, and whatever water's on the... will just drip off the end of his finger. That's all I'm asking for. It's a place of unquenchable fire. It is a place of unbearable thirst. What an awful place. It is a place of torment. It is a place where that people that die without Christ go to. And they're there. I want you to know something else about it. Not only is it a place of unquenchable fire and unbearable thirst, do you recognize that the greatest prayer meeting going on in the universe is going on in hell tonight? It is a place of unanswered prayer. He's asked for this drop of water. He's prayed for it. He doesn't get it. He now says, verse 27, I want you to notice this. Then he said, I pray thee therefore, Father, that thou would send him to my father's house. For I have five brethren that he may testify unto them, lest they also come in this place of torment. He actually uses the word pray. The word pray means I ask. That's what all prayer is asking. That's all it is. But I want you to notice it's a place of unanswered prayer. He realizes he is in this place of torment and it is an unquenchable fire, an unbearable thirst. And now he begins to realize, I have five brothers and they are living like I lived. And they are rejecting this wonderful salvation. And he says, will you send Lazarus back to them? They're still alive. They still have a chance. They can still make the right choice. They can still be converted. Will you send Lazarus to witness to him? By the way, every once in a while I deal with somebody that's, they've lost a loved one and they'll say, I've I've dealt with it. I've preached so many funerals over the years of lost people. They're always hard to preach because I really don't have any hope that I can give them. The only thing I try to do is get them to get saved. And I've had people say to me, Preacher, I know that my, whether it be their son or daughter, or whether it be their husband or wife, or their friend or their sibling is in hell, and I can't bear the thought of being separated from them, I'm going to be with them. First of all, they don't want you to come there. Anybody that is in hell is praying that their family and friends do not come there. 
There will be no fellowship there. There will be no family reunion there. There will be no glad days of shaking hands and hugging one another and saying, good to see you again. That will not take place in this place called hell. But it is a place of unanswered prayer. He's begging, send Lazarus back. Send him back. May he go testify to my brethren. By the way, Lazarus can't come back and testify to his brothers, but we sure can. As long as you and I are still in this world in our bodies and we've not been separated from our bodies by death and we're in the presence of Almighty God, as children of God, we have the opportunity to witness to people. By the way, I want you to notice what he said. He said, I want to testify to them. We live in this world. It's a strange world. They're trying to do all kinds of things. Oh, we need to do this to build our churches and to win people. Let me tell you what the people in hell think you need to do. They think you need to testify and tell them who Jesus is and tell them how they can be saved and tell them about the Word of God. They're not trying to change the old time way and do something uh, different. They, they know that what people need is the truth. And somebody needs to testify to them of the truth. He says, send him back and... Let him tell my brothers I'm in this place. Let him tell my brothers it's unquenchable flame or fire and an unbearable thirst. Go back and let him tell them where I'm at. Testify to them. You know what people in hell are doing? They're praying tonight. Somebody, somebody would reach their loved ones and keep them out of that place. But it's an unanswered prayer. I want you to notice what happens with his unanswered prayer. Verse 29. Abraham saith unto him, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. Now by the way, when he says Moses and the prophets, in this passage, that's making reference to the Old Testament. You know what he's saying? They have the Word of God. Let them listen to it. By the way, as I was preparing for this message, I began thinking about this generation. And we have all these seeker-friendly churches now and trying to come up with all these gimmicks to get people in and, and, and get them saved, quote-unquote. You, you, you know what the people in hell say? Give, you know what Moses is saying? You know what heaven is saying? Let them have the Bible. It is amazing to me that we've... The Bible is not preached. I... I Sometimes I don't understand that. People come, you know, come here. We have visitors here. People come from out of state. A lot of times they'll say, man, this is old-fashioned Bible preaching. I ain't heard this in years. I'm thinking, what else is there? I mean, if a man of God is a man of God, what, he doesn't have anything else to do but preach the Bible. He doesn't have anything else that he knows but what God says. And, and what, what should we be teaching in Sunday school? The Bible. What should we be teaching in our youth department? Brother Jared, the Bible. What should we be doing? Giving them the Bible. Because that is what tells them about hell and about heaven. Give them the Bible. But I want you to argue with him a little bit. It's a place of unquenchable fire. It's a place of unbearable thirst. It's going to be a place of unanswered prayer. But I want you to notice that he argues with him, verse 30. And he said, Nay, Father Abraham... But if one went unto them from the dead, they will repent. He says, they need repentance. 
By the way, isn't that interesting? People in hell are, are wanting us to preach repentance. It's amazing how many people don't want you to even talk about repentance and don't talk about sin and don't talk about it. But I guarantee you the people in hell are like this. I want my family to repent. I don't want them here. Give them the truth. But watch the hard truth in verse 31. And notice something else here about hell. And he said unto him, If they hear not Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rose from the dead. Let me tell you something. If somebody rejects this book, it doesn't matter what else you come up with, they're not going to be persuaded. It is a place of unquenchable fire, unbearable thirst, unanswered prayer, and utter hopelessness. It is an awful place. This place of torment. It's an awful place. It's one of these things that I, my, my, my mind really doesn't want to think about. I mean, my goodness. We, we live in a state that we call ourselves a volunteer state. The reason being because Man, we volunteer for everything to help people. You, 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 you see some tragedy happen here. Man, people just flock to it trying to help people that... In any kind of thing, some people in a burning house and people try to get them out of it. They don't want them there. And I cannot imagine someone being in hell just walk, turning my back and walking away from it. It's hard to preach on. It's hard to imagine someone that's there and can never be gotten out. It's hard to imagine this unquenchable fire and this unbearable thirst and the unanswered prayer and the utter hopelessness. But it's real. And I need to think about it. I hope I've got your attention a little bit tonight. So preacher, I don't like to think about this. We need to think about it. Now, now that we've thought about it, is it real to you? Is it real? Can you picture this in your mind's eye? And can it affect your heart? Is it real? It ought to be. Is it true that rich man's still there? Yep. Is it true that others have followed? Yep. Unfortunately. Unfortunately. I can name you some folks tonight that I know that are there. I got friends that I know are there. And I don't like the thought of it. I know they're there. Even as I make that statement, there are names and faces flooding my mind. The men, women, some family, some friends, some acquaintances that I met had the opportunity to try to give them the gospel and they rejected it and they died suddenly. You see, it's a misnomer to think you were going to come to a deathbed and die. 
The great vast majority of people die suddenly. Small percentage come to a deathbed and have a chance of repentance. They're very small. Most die suddenly. That's a fact. The truth of the matter is, I begin to think about this, and I begin to think, yeah, they're still there. Is it true that if someone dies without Christ, they go to hell? Is it true? Yeah, it's true. Well, then that begs me to ask myself a series of questions. Number one, am I sure I'm saved? You say, you ask yourself that? Absolutely. I think it ought to be one of these things that every one of us knows beyond a shadow of a doubt that when I die, I'm not going to hell. I need to be able to go back and give myself, testify to my own self. By the way, I do that often. I go back and I think, thank God that Charlie Shaver gave me the gospel. Thank the Lord that I didn't reject it. I came that close to rejecting it. I did. He told me how to get saved and that I need to trust Christ as my Savior. And in my fleshly mind, I thought, well, I, I'm just a young teenager. I've got all kinds of time. I don't want to do this now. I almost rejected it. And I thank God that He told me about hell. The only reason I didn't reject it is because He had showed me I was going to hell. And I sat there and thought, what kind of idiot gambles with this? Even before I got saved, I didn't gamble. Gambling always didn't make sense to me. It never made sense to me. And I thought, I'm gambling with my soul. I might die, go to hell. I'm not going to do that. I hear people say, well, you shouldn't tell kids and young people about hell. You ought to tell them about hell. You, you warn them about all kinds of other things. My, my, we ought to warn them about hell. Tell them it's real because it is real and give them the Bible and warn them just like we warn them about everything else. Warn them. So number one, are you saved? Do you know it? Do you know it? It's not important whether I know it or not. Every once in a while, I'll be dealing with somebody and I'll, and I'll talk to them. And, and listen, I'm, I just believe when it gets down where the rubber meets the pavement, and, and even if I know somebody's testimony and, and I'm dealing with them, I dealt with a, with a young woman here on Thursday and, 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 and I, I knew she had a testimony. I knew that. Going into the meeting, I knew that. We're sitting there and I'm talking with her and there's a, a reason that we're talking and and finally, I, at one point I said, are you sure? And she says, well, I don't know. Now what are you going to do about this? I did not say, well, you know what? I remember. I remember this. He said, why didn't you say that? Because it's, it, it's not my soul, it's hers. It's not me that has to be convinced, it's her that has to be convinced. I said, okay, let's, let's settle that. She said, yes, yes, let's settle that. I don't want to go to hell. I don't want to go to hell. By the way, that's a great truth now. When somebody don't want to go to hell, that's where they need to be. I remember going through all that with her in just a few minutes and took my time and got through. I said, now, and she said, you know what? 
I'm still not sure. Can we just make sure? You say, why is that? Because she had to be sure. And we prayed and she, she got that settled. She needs to have it settled for a reason, but she got it settled. So let me ask you, do you know that you're going to heaven? Now, I'm not trying to make you doubt your salvation. Salvation is simple and easy. You can't lose it. But my, my, you need to know it. It's not important what I think or your family thinks or your friends think. Do you know that you've been converted and you've trusted Christ as your Savior? Are you 100% sure of it? Because I'm telling you, you leave this earth without Christ. And whatever thing is holding you from settling it right now will be so unimportant when you lift up your eyes in hell. Whatever it is. Now I'm telling people, well, preacher, I'm just a, it embarrassed me. Embarrass you, my hind leg. If you lifted up your eyes in hell, that wouldn't be nothing compared to that. So the first question that has to be answered and asked by all of us is do I know that I'm not going to this place of torment? The next question, and I just shot, jotted down, is what am I doing about it? What am I doing about others? I remember the morning I got saved as a kid, and I, I wasn't raised in church, I didn't know none of this, and none of it well, but the very first thing entered my mind, I'm 13 now, and I began to think about my daddy, and my mama, and my brother. I didn't want none of them to go to hell. It didn't take me long. I began to think about all that bunch of hoodlums I run with at school, and I didn't want Bruce to go to hell. I didn't want Jim to go to hell, and I didn't want Steve to go to hell. He said, Who are you listening? I'm listening to my friends. I mean, all of a sudden, a lot of other things became very unimportant to me. How long has it been since it became important to you that somebody don't go to hell? I had a youth director challenged me shortly thereafter. Not just me, our class. He had us open our Bibles up to the back of the Bible. You know, there's these blank pages in the back of most of them. And he said, I'd like for you to write five names now of people that are going to hell that you love, that you want to pray for, do everything you can to see them get saved. And, and I went to the back of my Bible and I jotted five names down. He said, now listen, is that real to you? And it was real to me. And he said, if it's real to you, you pray for it every day. Not just occasionally, and, but every day. And it was real to me. It ought to be real to you. You ought to have you a list that you're working on that are going to hell. Because I guarantee you if one of these people die and go to hell and you haven't done your best to keep them out, you're always going to wonder if their blood is on your hands because you didn't do anything about it. What are you doing to keep people out of hell? The most important thing is to pray for them. 
I mean, that's not even hard. That just takes consistency. Every once in a while I have to go back and remind myself and get a new list. It was sort of strange. I got that Bible back down a while back. I don't use it anymore. Cover fell off of it. And I lost part of the Bible pages out of it. I carried it to school. All the time I went to school. Lost part of it. But that page was there. And I thought, I wonder who I wrote down there. I knew the first one was my dad. But I can't remember who the other four were. And I went back and I got to reading those names and I had the opportunity to lean two or three of those. And they were all older men. It sort of struck me odd. They were all my dad's age. I don't know why that those are the five I wrote down, but I got to baptize some of them and lead some of them to Christ. And all five of them have been saved and some of them are dead now. Some of them's in heaven now. I want to ask you, what are you doing to keep people out of hell? Do you have a list? Do you have a list of people you're even concerned about? Is there, there, is there some people that you're worried about? Do, do you have some young people that's not maybe reached stage of accountability yet that you're begging God to save their souls when they get old enough and, and, and help you do something to keep them from going to hell? What are you doing about it? What are you doing about this place called hell? I ask myself a question, am I steadfast? Man, the world's watching you. I mean, whether you realize it or not, you're being watched. Your family's watching you, your friends are watching you, your co-workers are watching you, your neighbors are watching you. You're here on a Sunday night, you probably believe this, or you wouldn't be here to be home watching a ball game or something. So there's probably some people you're trying to witness to and you've tried to talk to and but you know what they're doing? They're watching you. Are you steadfast in that? Steadfast. I don't want nobody to go to hell. If there was anything that drove me as a, as, as a teenager to try to, try to do the right thing. It, it wasn't because I was afraid of going to hell. I've been saved. It wasn't because I was trying to keep my salvation. I knew it was eternal. It's a present possession. I have it in my possession. It's eternal salvation. Boy, I sure didn't want my daddy to use me as an example like I'd heard him use others. I didn't want him to say, well, I'm as good as you are. He was better than me. But that, I wanted him to see there was something else. I didn't want my friends to look at me and say, that's what a Christian is. I don't want none of that. I didn't want that. You say, you're perfect? No, far from it. Breaks my own heart every day. Of, oh, wretched man that I am. But it ought to drive you and I to try to be better. This place called hell ought to be a, a reason that you and I live like Christians. So that we are an example to others that this thing is real. Because it is real. I begin to ask myself, am I saved? Do I know it? And what am I doing about it? Am I being steadfast? By the way, am I winning souls? You say, preacher, I don't know if I can win souls. Let me tell you something. God is not looking for ability. He's looking for availability. One of the greatest sermons I ever heard, Curse Hudson preached on a... Entitle that, God's not looking for ability, He's looking for availability. You really believe in hell? 
I really believe in hell. I believe in this place of torment. I remember early on when I got called to preach an example, and I'm about done. I want to help you with something. You've got people that you love that are on their way to hell. You've got friends that you love that are on their way to hell. You've got family and co-workers and neighbors. You know what they need? They need you to witness to them. I remember after I got saved and got called to preach, and I had a great burden, great, 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 great burden for, for my dad and, and for some others, but I had a great burden. And I remember I couldn't see some people saved, and I hadn't seen what I thought I needed to, and I'm always looking for things that maybe give me some sort of little edge, you understand? And I read a sermon by John R. Rice about how to win people, to, how to win your unsaved loved ones. That's what John R. Rice entitled the message. He entitled, How to Win Your Unsaved Loved Ones. And I thought, man, here it is. Here is the secret to what I've been looking for. And I remember I got that. It was just one of the little pamphlets we've got out there. And, and this is long before we started the church. And I remember getting that pamphlet and getting alone with it. And I thought, man, I'm going to read this pamphlet. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to find out the secret to winning my family and friends, and I don't want them to go to hell. I'm going to find out this secret because I don't know this secret. And I read that little pamphlet. It didn't take me long. It was just a short sermon. and it gave an illustration at the end of it that I've never forgot. He was preaching up in the upper Midwest, and he preached on hell at a Bible conference. <laughs> That's a novel idea. They always want to preach on something make themselves look real smart, and John R. Rice preached on hell. And in the service, there was a young man on the altar, pastor in the church in the area, and he said, Dr. Rice, my heart is broken. My, my daddy's going to hell, and I don't know what to do about it. He said, I'm a pastor in the church, and my daddy's going to hell, and, and I begin to <laughs> relate to all of that. He said, I don't know how to do anything about it, and I don't know what to do about it. And Dr. I said, well, have you talked to him? He said, well, I'm afraid to. And he said, you need to. Who else is going to? It was about 9, 30, 10 o'clock, and I got out of the service that night. And that young man said to John, I said, you pray for me. He said, my daddy lives four hours away. God been my helper. I'm going to wake him up. And he got in his truck. He drove four hours away. Did what we would not have done. He didn't call and tell him he was coming. He just goes and starts beating on the door at 2 o'clock in the morning. Finally, his dad comes to the door. He's broken and he can't talk. His dad thinks something horrible has happened to the family. He gets him in the house. Sits him down and finally the kid gets his breath. It's calmed down enough to talk. And his dad son, what's, what's going on? Something happened. <laughs> you ask about the grandkids first. You don't ask about anybody else. Everything's fine. Finally, he says, well, what's wrong? And he says, Daddy, you're going to hell. It's breaking my heart. And his daddy got saved. You know, there's no secret to this thing. You say, that sure wasn't very eloquent. Oh, but it was powerful. 
You see, people don't care how much you know till they know how much you care. That little illustration changed my whole life. I just decided I'm an old dumb country boy and I don't have any knowledge and I don't have any wisdom. I never will. I know there's a place called hell. I know that. And it breaks my heart that my family and friends are going and I can at least go to them and tell them I love them but I don't want them to go. And you know what? It works. It works. This place of torment's an awful place. Awful place. We don't like to hear about it because it pricks our conscience. But it's an awful place. The truth of the matter is tonight, I need to be asking myself some questions. Am I sure I'm not going? Absolutely. Am I concerned about others? I hope you're more concerned now than you was a few minutes ago. If you got a phone call in the middle of the service and somebody died, you'd be concerned about it then, I guarantee you that. Now, what are you doing about it? Are you steadfast? Are you living like you believe this thing? Is Christ first or does He just sort of take second place in your life? Third, fourth, whatever you got left over. Are you trying to win anybody? When's the last time you talked to somebody about it? You say, I might not be eloquent. I, I, I might stutter and stammer. I do that all the time. They just know that I believe it. And your family and friends would listen to you if they knew you loved them and you believed it. And they could watch your life and your life says, I believe it. There is a place called hell. And this place of torment should change my life every day. This place of torment. Every head bowed and every eye closed. I appreciate you being here tonight.